Welcome to episode 5 of Parliamentary Procedure with Chris and Victor. My name is Victor. And my name is Chris. And today we're going to be talking to you about House Committee assignments. In general, how representatives are chosen to be on specific House Committees. Let's just first start off with what is the bare minimum in terms of the House rules? Because as you will see later today, there's a, a lot of politics and just informal procedures that go into this assignment process that's not from the House rules. They're actually from specific party rules and specific party procedures. But the bare minimums in the House is that the House is composed of many committees. So obviously, one representative can't be on a million committees. They can only be put on to a few committees because of just the fact there are a limited number of committees and a lot of representatives in the House. Now, each of these committees has some of them have subcommittees each of the committee has a chair a ranking member and just several members in general on the committee for all these committees the majority party will have more members than the minority in order to maintain majority control of the entire chamber and that majority control is imposed into each individual committee yeah and that's decided by it's a ratio. It's not just like a random, we're going to make sure there's a majority. They, they spe- the, the majority party specifies a ratio for each committee of how many members of the majority will be there for every member of the minority. Um, yes, generally that is decided by both the majority and the minority. But also, uh, to keep in mind, is that this ratio can change depending on how big the, how big the majority is in the House, for example. Exactly. Or... Or if the majority, for example, just wants to maintain a stronger presence in House committees, they can arbitrarily decide to stack the committees if they wanted to. Right. There's, in fact, as an aside, there's actually a legal reason why in the majority, in some very rare cases, would really want to stack a committee because some congressional committees are actually empowered by law to grant immunity for testimony before the committee. So, but to grant that immunity, they need to have a two-thirds vote in the committee and if there is not a two-thirds vote in Congress, but because the majority can arbitrarily put as many members as they want on every committee, they could potentially stack a committee right. full of majority members. But anyway, <laughs> back to the structure of the committee. The chair of a committee is the leader of the committee and controls the operations of the committee. Also, a little-known fact is the chair hires most of the committee staff. So essentially, most of the committee staffs, they report to the chair of the committee, and that's why it's really important to be the committee chair because you basically get to control the direction at least the staff that are assigned to the majority party. Likewise, the ranking member controls the minority staffs of that committee. Right. And the ranking member is who? The ranking member is like the most senior member in the minority party that's on that committee. Does that necessarily mean they are like the oldest? Like what does senior mean in this context? So generally senior in overall in the house means... Basically, like when you were elected to the House, in order uh, in order of the election to the House is how seniority is determined, but specifically the committee setting. It's actually determined by each party individually in general, but in the House, once the parties have assigned members to committees, seniority is generally seen as the f- amount of years that you've served on that committee, basically. Right. And so, like, I believe when you're sitting down in your official, like, an official hearing of the committee, or are you just officially sitting at the committee, 
you will have an order of seniority just present in how the members are situated on the dais of the committee. So, like, if they're taking testimony, the order that the representatives sit on the dais is actually determined by seniority. I think it's, like, the same way in the Supreme Court, where the most senior member sits in the very center, Hmm. and then they alternate by seniority from the center until the very outskirts are non-senior members of the court. Same thing in committees, I believe. They have a similar structure. And, like, the ranking member is essentially the second most senior member of the committee. Right. So it's chair and then essentially ranking member. Although it's important, it's, it, it is important to recognize that although they're the second most senior member, they are very, very much less important than the chair in House committees. Because, yeah. as we yes, mentioned, are... the chair can have an arb like, the chair has a majority and it's guaranteed so they can kind of run the committee as they see fit. Yes, exactly. They are relevant in the decision-making process if the majority really wants to force their own decisions through. Also, by second senior, I, I mean that just in general, in how how senior order of precedence in the House is, is that yeah. the ranking member is like the second important person in the committee. Like, for example, right. whenever the leadership of the committee is consulted by, let's say, the executive agencies or, for example, the intelligence committee, when they brief the leaders of Congress, they brief the House Speaker, they brief the House Minority Leader, mm-hmm. then they brief the Chair and Ranking Member of the Intelligence Committees of the House. And the, their similar counterparts in the Senate. Yeah, It's also, since you mentioned the Senate, it's, it's also important to notice, or to recognize that the Senate operates, at least in practice, operates a little bit differently. Uh, in the Senate, committees are uh, a little bit more collegial, and the Ranking Member and the Chair of many of the Senate committees attempt to rule kind of collectively, um, but it's not at all the same in the uh, House. By the way, I also just want to briefly mention something that you we touched the base upon earlier. Although the size of each committee and the ratio between majority and minority are determined by the majority party, mm-hmm. the way this is actually enforced in House procedure is through adoption of House either House rules or House resolutions. Yeah. So technically... If there was some kind of cross-party, uh, I don't know, group of representatives, they could technically undo this. Yes. So this is not something that the majority party leader just says this will be right. happening, and that's just what's happening. Well, this it's is a, something that has to be affirmatively confirmed. Yeah. Continue. This is something that has to be affirmatively confirmed by the House. So there will be a vote taking on the floor at some point with something that specifies what the committee ratios are. Right. But in general, based on past precedent and just the general collegial nature of committee assignments, the majority party doesn't tell the minority party who's going on what committee, even though they really could because they could just amend the committee uh, placements at any time because all the committee placements are adopted by majority vote in the House. Similarly, if there was some coalition between minority and majority members, technically the majority... The minority could also make an amendment to majority committee pay- placements, and then if they had enough votes, that could be adopted as well. But this doesn't happen because there's party discipline. <laughs> and if you were to j- join the other party in doing this, you would probably not receive any campaign funding help for yeah. your next election cycle. Actually, someone will probably run against you if you did something like yeah. that. Um. In the primary. But at the same time, several there are representatives who actually... Uh, defeated 
like the party leadership in their district to win. So mm -hmm. in that case, they're not really beholden to certain party conventions. So like really, if they wanted to, they could yeah. go against the grain. Additionally, if you're from a very moderate district, I don't think someone is going to run a more progressive campaign against you and expect to win in the general election. So in that case, you could also have some more leeway to fight your party because in the end, the leadership roles in the House are so important that maybe they'll allow you to vote against the party in certain votes at the expense of still getting like the House Speaker and the House Majority Leader and the House Whip and a bunch of other leadership positions in the House. Right. Okay. So, Chris, do you want to tell us how committee assignments are officially assigned to a representative of the House or sent or just the representative of the House? Um, sure. So, officially at least, the way the assignment process works is that the wh whichever party controls the the House by having a majority of the members introduces a resolution um, which says what the committee assignments will be, and that includes the committee chairs um, and the ranking members, as well as all the other members of those committees. However, in practice, this is, as we were referring to earlier, where the political sort of party nature of like our system starts to actually play it come into play because in practice what happens is that the republican caucus or the republican conference will select its members um if it's in the majority then it'll select the, all the chairs and its ratio of members and then the democratic caucus will do the same for its members and then whichever party is in the minority will send its party assignments to the majority and they'll add that to the bill without as we mentioned sort of making any changes and then the the whole house will generally um, vote to approve the resolution and it's important to note that it is a resolution and not um, a bill or anything because it's not actually getting signed by the president it's just the house members deciding amongst themselves what the assignments will be but but to add to that Yes, they can do it in a general bill, but also a lot of times there are individual bills for the majority and individual bills for yeah, the minority. Right. Which well, are again, they're individual resolutions. But yeah. Yes, individual resolutions. They're separated. Submitted. Sorry, continue. Yeah, submitted by one caucus or the other. But yeah. also, I'd like to add that the general idea has been that the minority party selects members only for the minority, whereas if they're independent members, the general procedure has been the majority has to assign them to committees. Yes. But, like, for example, when Justin Amash declared he was independent, he resigned from his Republican committee assignments and instead is either now not assigned to a committee or has recently been assigned to a committee, but I don't think he has been. So I, mm. he might be a representative without any committee assignments. Yeah. There are oh, yeah. some so, there are some other official limitations though on um on committee assignments because like we're going to get into in a few minutes there are specific party rules so the Republican conference is going to have specific assignment procedures and so is the Democratic conference um but there is um still other official um official house rules that are that limit the uh the assignment process um, so one of the big ones is that in general, 
at least in practice, members aren't supposed to serve on more than two standing committees and then any four subcommittees of those standing committees. Um, there's another major limitation is kind of some of the import the major important committees have special assignment or special assignment rules. So the budget committee uh, has a limited number of uh, it has a term limit how long you can be on it. The same with the uh, intelligence committee. They're both limited in the number of terms they serve to, um, I think it's uh, six successive Congresses. Um, so yeah, you can serve uh, four terms every six Congresses on right. the Intelligence Committee, as well as the Budget Committee. However, in particular the Intelligence Committee, the chair and ranking member are exempt from this uh, term limitation. Yeah, and all of this though, this is important, like... there. There is one reason, though, not letting all of the reason these committees rotate and have term limits is because they're really important that there's a body of the representatives who actually know how these committees work and that the power isn't concentrated into a few hands because these are relatively, they're what are considered some of the more important uh, committees. So this, this system of rotation is also, it's not just like a power diffusing device, it's also a institutional sort of competency device where it makes sure there's a constant stream of people who are understanding the importance of the intelligence stuff we're having or who know how to operate like the budget so yeah i mean yes i think another part as you mentioned is just to prevent one particular representative from getting too i guess maybe powerful in a certain budget in like the budget committee or a similar committee Maybe that's one of the mentalities behind these rules. Yeah. Okay, so Chris, do you want to now go through the assignment procedure in the Republican caucus? Sure. So to understand how the Republican uh, caucus's assignment process works, you kind of know need to know a little bit about the basic structure of the caucus itself. So the caucus is actually, it refers to itself as the Republican Conference, um, and it's composed of all the elected members of the Republican Party in the House of Representatives for that congressional session. Um, the leaders of the Republican Conference are the speaker, if there's a speaker. Otherwise, it's the uh, minority member. Um, you mean majority leader? Minority leader. Sorry, ma yeah, minority leader. There can also be a majority leader when there's a speaker. But when there's a speaker, he assumes basically a lot of the powers of... He, he assumes, obviously, lots of powers because he's the speaker and he's also given sort of control over the caucus. When there is no speaker, the minority leader um, ha gets a lot of those powers, some of which don't become applicable because there's no longer any power. Then there's also the whip. Um, he's, in theory, the person who's supposed to whip up votes for whatever bill is. He's supposed to enforce the, uh, the authority of the party. Um, Frank Underwood started out as a whip. Uh, for reference. Uh, then there's the Republican conference chair. Uh, then there's a vice chair to the conference as well. Um, there's a Republican policy committee chair. Um, he's somebody who's ch on charge of the sort of long-term policy committee for the Republican party. Um, there's the national Republican, what is it? Congressional conference chair. That's there. There are a few of these different leadership and sort of strategy boards. Um, then there are the class reps for junior and freshman uh, representatives, and those are representatives elected by the freshman and sophomore representatives to have a place in the leadership to sort of communicate their needs 
And then there are the, once they're elected, all the committee chairs. Uh, yeah, I'd also like to add that, mm -hmm. like you mentioned, the whip position is actually a pretty unique position because it only exists as a separate leadership position, like a third leadership position when the party's in the majority. Because when they're in the minority, the, there's only the majority leader and the majority whip. And that the third person line essentially moves down to a not a named leadership position. Whereas when the party is in the majority, there's a speaker, majority leader, and majority whip. So there's three kind of, of these top leadership positions. But the minority only gets two. Um, and the, these positions are, of course, um, for the most part elected by the, the, the majority of the conference elects them. Um, although the speaker, of course, has slightly different election requirements, although it kind of works out to be the same. It's um, So this Republican conference, though, a subset of that is the Republican conference steering committee. And the steering committee's job is to actually do the work of selecting committee assignments. Um, there are a bunch of different committees. Uh, there are a bunch of different committees that the actual uh, caucus and conference operates, and the steering committee is just one of them. It's not the sole purpose of the caucus by any means. So within this subset of the conference, though, the steering committee is composed of a lot of basically the same leadership. The speaker's there, the, uh, the house majority or minority leader, respect, again, it depends on what, if they're in power or not, then the whip, the Republican Conference Chair, Vice Chair, the Policy Committee Chair, the Congressional Committee Chair, and then there's a Chairman Designee for the committee itself. There's a Speaker Designee, so he gets to appoint somebody. There are several at-large members that are elected. Um, then there is several geographical reps. So there's a rep elected by Texas because it has such a large congressional delegation, it's given its own rep. There's regional rep, which represents um, uh, various region, like it, it's, there are other regional reps basically that other than Texas that represent sort of regional concerns. There's a small state rep to represent the needs of states that are really tiny, who have really tiny delegations. And then there's again, the class reps, uh, the sophomore and freshman class reps. So there's a sharing of the leadership so that when these committee assignments are made, at least in theory, the people who make them have a broad base of um, opinion and sh shared interest with people who might be seeking assignments. Um, all of these members get one vote, except for the speaker, who unsurprisingly gets four, and then the leader who gets two. Although, of course, if there is no speaker, then the leader gets two, and then the next highest position, or sorry, the leader gets four, and the next highest position gets two. So it's like Victor mentioned, there's a dropping down sort of process. Everything just kind of gets bumped down one when your political party is not in power. Um, so what the steering committee does is it makes all the recommendations for a committee for a conference-wide vote. Um, all the recommendations have to be confirmed by a majority vote, um, but generally what the steering committee recommends is what's um, selected because the whole steering committee process is sort of a um, people have to apply to the steering committee uh, the steering committee will often meet with certain members, especially if they're asking for a position on important committees. They'll uh, require you to meet with the probable committee chair, who the steering committee also selects. 
they might want to interview um, just to see why you actually want to be on the committee because certain committees have a lot of ability for uh, influence trading and things like that and believe it or not the the controllers of the you know party are concerned about who actually has the levers of power so i guess my question is do you think the steering committee ever has like controversial decisions or where they themselves vote along like narrow lines to recommend someone or not or do you think it's basically just a rubber stamp for the majority leader i think um i think for the the vast majority of the time it's a bit of a rubber stamp for the majority leader but i think the reality is also that the majority leader is using this committee as a way to like if they have so like I think in practice what probably happens is the majority leader probably just lets the process run as it will and then if he has any specific people he wants to pick out he'll do so and make those recommendations and where he makes a recommendation it will generally be given credence but I think in a lot of practice a fair amount of like the committee process seems to actually work as people making their recommendations there's a seniority system so that kind of weighs things and you just kind of uh, it seems like the process actually works as it should although again on the whole though I think once the committee actually makes its recommendation things tend to get all approved because the whole process is arrived at through consensus within the party and the speaker only gets his spot if he has the party's support and if he decides to make a lot of controversial assignments then maybe he won't end up as the speaker forever. So it's like there's a sort of balancing process there. But I do think that for the most part, if the speaker has a recommendation, it's deferred to. Yeah. Um, so within the Republican conference, one of the sort of filtering processes for how people can apply to committees um, is that there are sort of exclusive committees um, where you're limited to the, in the number of how many you can serve on. Um, and you, uh, th those committees, these exclusive committees are the Appropriations Committee, the Ways and Means Committee, the Energy and Commerce Committee, and the Rules Committee. And as you might know, uh, if you listen to some of our earlier podcasts, these are some of the most important committees. So the reason that you're limited in how many of these you can serve on is to make sure you're uh, limited in how much power you can amass because uh, the rules committee obviously very powerful uh, the appropriations has control all the money and so does ways and means and then energy and commerce also um, has a lot of things under its sway Not this under also yeah sorry this also means that you can only be on this committee and you can't be on any other committees if you're on an exclusive committee right uh yeah okay and then there are non-exclusive committees when you can serve on several of these, uh, too, basically. Um, that includes agriculture, armed services, the budget committee, um, education and the workforce, foreign affairs, homeland security, judiciary, natural resources, the oversight and reform committee, science, space, and technology, small businesses, transport, infrastructure, and veterans affairs. Uh, and... Interestingly, if you if you parse this list, there are still some very important committees: uh, foreign affairs, armed services, um, judiciary. So, I think that there there is still a willingness to allow people to have 
um, broad responsibilities across several. Like, if you were on, say, the Armed Services Committee and, I don't know, Veterans Affairs, that seems like a fairly complementary set of skills, but those could both be having a lot of responsibility because there's a lot of oversight involved in both of those. But it's not the same sort of importance as something like appropriations or rules. So I think that's maybe how the distinguishment is done. Um, okay. And of, yeah. And of course, also, um, basically all the committee rules are determined by assignment rules are, are really overturnable by a lot of cases by majority votes. So sometimes if the um, if some of these assignment rules are broken because there's a particularly influential congressman who's been in Congress for a long time and is allocated certain committees then you might see like exceptions to a lot of the rules that we're saying here oddly enough but the main the, the main point that i think is also very important to mention for the republican caucus is there is that each member can only serve at most three terms as chair of the committee or subcommittee or and this usually includes as ranking member of that committee but this is actually the discretionary part where the speaker, who if they're a member of the majority, right, the speaker or the majority, minority leader, if they're a member of the minority, can actually exclude them from, like, for example, if they serve two terms as ranking member and then the Republican Party became the majority party and, and then they could now serve as the chair of a committee, normally they would only be able to serve one more term, but the speaker can grant exceptions to, for example... We've been a long time with the minority, and I think we should allow someone who has more experience as chair so that they could serve for multiple years as the chair of the committee. This is actually usually done as a term of like political favor gathering and just in general. Um, the speaker can just choose what people they think are best for them to be leaders, leaders of committees. Because this is what basically John Boehner did when he was uh, um, Speaker of the House. He essentially only gave exceptions to individual members that he, I think he thought were best for him. Right. But I think that's his, uh, that's to be expected. I feel like. I think it would be a very strange norm if you were just generally like, we have a ranking system with exceptions, but everyone is going to get the exception applied to them. Like, I think it's clear well, yeah. if you have that ranking system and there's an exception, it's really just in the structure of a political party, it's there for a patronage purpose, I feel like. Yeah, but this was sold to the American people in the contract with America as something good where they're imposing term limits, whereas really what this is involved into is just a way for the Speaker to amass even more power in the House. It, like, removed, in a sense, the checks and balances on the Speaker that existed prior to that, whereas the chairs, if they really wanted to get something through because of the influence they amass over the years, they could get some legislation through even over the objections of the Speaker, whereas now in the Republican Party there's really no objection to the speaker because you have to say, stay in their really, really good graces or you will lose your chair position much faster or you won't. That's like, true. There's a, there's a lot more power in the leadership of the Republican Party because well, of this rule. That's very true. But uh, you can, we'll have to say, though, I think the Republican Party does a much better job at staying on brand. And that's I would guess, has to do with better party centralization and better party control. So maybe, I mean, if, and if you, and just to develop that a little bit further, if you are a supporter of the Republican Party, then presumably you want it to be the most effective 
political machine it can be in delivering you what you you know support so if a more centralized leadership structure is more conducive to them managing to kind of prevent negative legislation and get legislation that they want then i think that you're doing the right thing as a leader of the party as it even maybe. in a democracy if maybe but you as a voter in this particular district mm-hmm. it might be even more worthwhile for you to for example vote for a democrat and keep that democrat in the house for a really long time because then they'll will eventually be a chair of a committee and then when they're chair of the committee they can stay as chair for basically as long as the democrats are in the majority and when someone's a chair of a committee it's much better for their district because they have much more influence so right you well, as a voter actually I, I think that's an interesting point the fact that seniority though like if you're riding on seniority to get your representative to become a, um, a an important person in the Senate and be able to deliver you benefits, then are they not, but what is their job for the rest of the time? Like, are they not, if they're good at Congress, like if they're a good representative and they're able to play the congressional game well, wouldn't they be amassing favors for you and your district the whole time to get elected and reelected anyway? So like, I don't know. I feel like although neither system that currently exists actually seems to reward genuine like merit or have a real system to reward merit, and I think it would be difficult to figure out what technically constitutes merit for somebody who's a congressman. Like, what? How would you calculate that? But um, I don't know. I don't think that seniority or non-seniority, like both systems, I see a, a lot of flaws in. Oh, of course, there are flaws. But what I'm just saying is, it seems like there is a little bit of a avoidance of the discussion of the fact that this this system rewards congressmen from a particular district who stay in power longer, whereas this other system might not reward them as well. But if staying in power longer in your district, so like, let's say you're like, a representative from like or like the representative from like South Dakota <laughs> um, is it really that worthwhile that you've managed to like is it really are you a better representative simply for being the only guy in like South Dakota who wants to go to the House of Representatives and once you're an incumbent it's harder for you to get knocked out so like you're just kind of riding the wave uh, like, yeah. does that person but, really suddenly become qualified for a chairmanship just because they've had, like, the, they've, uh, you know, out-attritioned all the other members that started with them? I mean, it's, it's, in either party, there's still a seniority system, so yeah. they will still, like, I know, in the Republican but, uh, Party, they're just limited to six. It's a of both of those systems. I yeah. think a seniority yeah. system is generally problematic. So a maybe. modified seniority system maybe ameliorates some of that, but I don't think it's the perfect either system but what i'm saying is just this this whole idea that seniority can actually be a very important determinant factor in what actually gets passed from the representative of a certain district or what kind of benefits a representative is able to secure for a certain district is something that's completely ignored i think in the modern uh, political discourse whereas i don't think it should be like if your representative is a chair of a committee and you're thinking about voting for the other person, I think you should really consider what B 
being a chair of a committee brings to the district before as part of uh, yeah. your vote. But you'd have to really research that because that will vary by chair. Because I'm sure there are some chairs who contribute a lot to their district, and then there are some chairs who have a secure district and think, well, I don't really need to make improvements, so I'm really going to work on focusing on the party, like focusing on helping other members of the political party achieve things for their districts where they need a little bit more help. Because if you're in a safe seat, you know, maybe you don't have to make investments back into your county as much. I don't know. I mean, that that is certainly a possibility. So it might be that, yes, they're in a safe seat, then maybe there is other things they're doing, or maybe they have other pursuits like, oh, I can now concentrate on building an even bigger national profile, maybe run for president, or maybe run for the Senate of the state. So yes, that might be something that they are thinking about. But still, I think generally representatives try to improve their district. They, They try to work to make life better for the people in their district. And being in a leadership role really gives you more bargaining power than in a non-leadership role. That's true. I'm just not sure that it's really a strength of seniority that that happens for people. Who oh, sit. I'm not, say- I'm yeah, not saying yeah, that's even a strength just, of seniority. I'm just saying even if you get rid of the seniority system, mm-hmm. and but there is still some system where it's presumed that if you're chair one year, you'll be chair the next. Right. Then you sh- I think you should really think about what the chair brings to your district. Okay. Like... Like, for example, if the chair of the Appropriations Committee is in a swing district, right? Yeah. You would want to, I think, probably retain that chair. Yeah, it would galvanize you to vote more often. And also, for example, if there's also, like, a military base in the district or some other big government department in that district, the chair will probably be able to continue to secure funding for that, uh, for that government facility, whereas if now you've elected a member, a freshman member from a different party for that district, it might be more difficult for then that person to continue defending those uh, that spending in that district. Yeah, I think that's certainly fair. So do you, Victor, want to tell us a little bit about how the Democratic Caucus does its assignment process? Sure. So I, the first thing I want to mention is that the Democratic Caucus is actually quite interesting because they only release their rules of how they do the assignment process when it, I when it suits them, it seems that way. <laughs> they're so, a little, that's interesting to me. They're, they're, the Democratic Caucus is the one, because I should say, the Republican Caucus, it, it's, uh, you, you can go online and find their uh, rules on their website, uh, which to me is a little bit of the reverse of how I'd imagine, or at least how sometimes the media portrays the two parties. But anyway. Yes, exactly. It actually, Democ- I, sorry, if you finish your thought <laughs> I mean, the Democratic caucus is now talking a lot about the president hiding things from Congress, but yet, yeah. I don't know, they're not releasing their own rules. This yeah. might seem like a, a trifling matter, but I just think they, why don't... Yeah, why it's a bad they, look, 100%. Yeah, why are they against publicity? But because you know what? They, because they're part of the deep state, Victor, because liberals are part of the deep state, <laughs> and this just is perfect proof that Trump was right all along. But yeah, I mean... It's not hard for them to release the rules. They released the rules in the last Congress before they were in the majority. I really don't understand why they yeah. can't release the rules now. I don't know. I mean, I could understand why from, like, a... They're private... Like, they are relatively, like... I don't, like... If you were trying to do your assignment process and you knew that it was going to be, like, 
a part like heavily deal making involved and like it is a very political like process like as a person involved in that process you probably would like a little obscurity to it so if committee assignments come out looking weird nobody is like hey you didn't follow the rules there they're like hey we think you probably didn't follow the rules but we haven't seen your procedure so maybe you changed something maybe but i still think it's a bad look Clearly, Republicans are showing that they have less to hide. Republicans re- released their rules while they were in the majority, but they only re- they also released them after the Democrats complained that they didn't release them, and now the Democrats are in the majority, and they were previously complaining that the Republicans didn't release their rules, and yet they're not releasing their rules now, which yep. I really don't understand. Well, but anyway, <laughs> let's get into the particulars. Sure. So, these rules of the Democratic caucus, they're not official procedure they are rules that are just bind the members who want to be bound by them and if you want to be bound by them you have to you have to be a member of the democratic caucus but if you decide you don't want to follow the democratic caucus rules you're free to leave the caucus at any time you will just not receive any fundraising support or you will probably not get committee assignments or if you do get committee assignments you'll be assigned the worst committees does so bernie sanders saying, caucus with the democrats um, I think he either caucuses with the Dems. He definitely caucuses with the Dems the whole time he's been in the Senate. Mm-hmm. But in the House, I think he either caucused with the Democrats or he just caucused with the majority party okay. and was assigned... Com- or, or maybe he was just assigned committees by the majority party. Hmm. I think that's what typically happens in the House is you are assigned committees by the majority party even if you're not a member of that caucus. But, okay. but Bernie Sanders actually... Have, um, he he was an enterprising representative because he was very good at getting uh, like amendments to bills adopted hmm. during debate. But anyway, so if you are part of the members of the caucus, you have to follow uh, certain rules, which is you have to vote for the speaker, other officers of the house that the caucus recommends, as well as for... I'm sorry, each, did you uh, say you have to vote for who it the speaker recommends according to their previous rules yes you should so, be voting f- so it's not a free choice no it's uh, so or it's a, caucus- this is your suggested vote no no this is like the vote that you're technically required to take i think oh for the most part the voting for speaker since it's seen as such a big thing and actually this is something that's covered in the news i think people are given more leeway if the vote isn't going to be close to like I think Nancy Pelosi lost a lot of votes from the progressive wing and also from the moderate wing for during her election to speakership, but it was never in question that she would be elected with the majority of the votes of the House. It was just whether so or not I, they could get a, some of the Republicans to join them and block it. No, no, it was more of the fact that if it was close, like for example, the, the, the rules of the House say you need to have an absolute majority of the House to be elected speaker. Right. So, because it wasn't, because the Democrats actually won by a large number of seats, they have a pretty safe cushion. Yeah. Um, so, they just because adapt. they had a safe cushion, more people were allowed to skirt the rule than otherwise. Basically, yes. But okay. it seems like in the past, at least, in the 115th rules, as well as even early rules going back to the 70s, where, um, which I was able to access because they were in Gerald Ford's presidential <laughs> library. Yep. Back and before he, he got pulled up into the cabinet. And drove. Um, yeah. 
It is but interesting. Some... I so like ju- just as an aside for that, because I during the course of our research, I also found Gerald Ford's um, uh, mentioned in in some of the actual the precedents he, he's mentioned because there's several. I guess during his time as I think he was what the minority leader of the Democrats. Yeah. Der- was it the Democrats? No, it was the Republicans. Yeah, sorry, minority leader of the Republicans. Um, while he was while he was there, I guess there are several issues of committee assignments stuff because he's in the precedent for it. If you look into it, um, but yeah, it's why like I guess I have never really paid all that much attention to Gerald Ford, and so I didn't realize he had that much of a prominent role prior to the vice presidency. Honestly, other than you know. He gets such a bad rap as being like sort of like awkward and clumsy. It didn't even but occur yeah. to me. But yeah, for some reason, the copy of the Democratic rules were in the Joe Ford's presidential oh, library. That's maybe why I got it mixed up. Sure. Okay. <laughs> but um, so most of the most of this procedure I've in- interpreted from the 110th Congresses as well as the 115th Congresses and just news articles about how things went this time around for the 116th Congress. So while this portrayal of the procedure might not be entirely correct, I try my best to make it as accurate as possible. Essentially, there are exclusive committees, as Chris mentioned previously, for the Republican caucus. There's other, there's major and minor committees, and um, they're, they're essentially a similar internal committee to the caucus called the Democratic Steering and Policy Committee that is responsible for recommending caucus nominees to membership of committees, one committee at a time. So basically, the steering committee meets, makes a bunch of recommendations on who's going to be on what committee, and then what happens is they propose these recommendations to the Democratic caucus, and then one committee at a time, the Democratic caucus, has to vote to confirm them. That seems like a slow process. I think that's if you're going to formally do it, like, maybe if it's contentious. I imagine... I imagine what actually happens is everyone's like, okay, there's unanimous consent on this recommendation. Yeah, there's unanimous cons- that makes more sense. There's unanimous consent on all these recommendations. So, But I imagine if someone really wants to contest it in the, in the caucus, they could vote one committee at a time, and maybe they can try to get people kicked off certain committees if for some reason they really didn't like them. But I don't know how exactly <laughs> that would work. So... In the Democratic caucus, seniority in a committee is determined by years of prior service in the committee. And if two members serve the same number of years in the committee, the tiebreaker is the order that members are nominated by the Steering and Policy Committee. But this was back in the 110th Congress. Now, the 115th Congress rules said that this is determined just how this, however the Steering Committee wants to determine it. So this also <laughs> leaves a another power vacuum for the leadership to really decide who they like more if two members have been serving for a long time in a committee and they really like one member over the other they could recommend them as chair of the committee so this gives leadership another kind of step in how to be influential within congress yeah there are separate rules however in seniority in general for the rules committee house administration and the budget committee so these are three committees that are kind of administrative and procedural in their entirety. So the Rules Committee is generally either responsible for resolutions that amend the rules of the House 
or just really responsible for saying how the House will debate certain bills. Uh, the House Administrations Committee is really responsible for like the minutia of who are the what are the procedures by which we're going to hire people in the House. What is what is um, I think they're also responsible for making um, recommendations on allocations of who gets what money in the House. So like uh, when the House is passing resolutions to fund the House itself and the Senate, I imagine as well, the House Administration will be influential in deciding who gets how much money and for what but one of the really big things that i think maybe someone should revise this or really rethink these separate rules for the house administration committee is the fact that if democrats or just in general if people want to get rid of uh gerrymandering this could only Mm -hmm. start in the house administration committee because the house administration is also responsible for how election procedures to the House works. So that's like their one yeah. that's their one piece of original legislative jurisdiction they can do before the, so that's yeah. their legislative jurisdiction. You also I also just to, as a quick aside, I don't think that the Democrats would want to get rid of gerrymandering. I think uh, there are several democratic states that benefit from dem- uh, from pretty harsh gerrymandering right now. Yes, but I think in general if you want to get rid of it on a country level, it might even be uh, beneficial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For Democrats, and based on the Supreme Court's decision last term, the only way you could do it is through a law, not not right. on a countrywide level. You could pass a law saying that this is how uh, house districts house districts have to be drawn, and then it won't it will no longer be a political question. Then the I guess the Supreme Court will have to decide if it's within the authority of Congress to regulate um, house districts in this way, which generally they hold Congress can do because they are granted pretty wide authority in the Constitution to regulate House and Senate elections. Like, mm. like before the passage of the uh, amendment, which changed the voting age to 18, um, Congress had passed a law saying that everyone about above 18 years old could vote, and that was held by the court to not be constitutional because you can't tell states what to do. But right. the law was essentially limited to just federal elections, which Congress did have the authority to say that so there were several states where you could vote for federal elections once you turned 18, but you can only vote for state elections once you turned 21. Hmm. Um, so, with that... Or like, yeah? Oh yeah, so did you have a comment about that? No, no. So, the rules of the House, basically, the House Democrats basically say that um, any time a returning member wants to continue being on a committee that they were already on, they get priority. But I think what happens is if there's too many people wanting to return, like, for example, the majority party becomes a minority and they have less seats, then right. in that case, the steering committee gets some... Uh, More discretionary yeah. authority to pick people. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Shocking. Yeah. Um, also... I sense a pattern. But I think the caucuses at times fought back because there's also another provision which allows state delegations to nominate people um, to specific committees if there's a letter signed by more than 50% of the member state delegation that they should be on this committee. Um, Interesting. Additionally, the rules declare, although I don't know how these rules are enforced, that nominations are to be made without consideration of prior occupation or profession. So I guess this might be seen as good i think it's just to make sure like people who aren't because like if you're on the budget committee and you're not a tax lawyer 
uh, or a lawyer who's ever looked at it or spent any, or, or just an accountant or somebody who has familiarity with the tax code. Um, there could be a very good reason to be like, uh, no, you're not allowed to be on this because it's a specialist committee and it's very important. We don't want amateurs on there. And then those people who don't have that experience might say, well, actually, because we're not the uh, professionals here, we need to have a seat at the table because the budget or, you know, taxes or whatever is too crazy. We need to simplify it. Yeah. I could see it as, a, as an important measure. Of course. That is definitely something that's important. And while I think in general this is a good idea, some people might disagree with this. So I thought it would be worth mentioning. Like, for example, oh yeah, certainly. like a lot of uh, people in my profession, like scientists, feel that uh, people deciding science issues should be scientists. Or, for example, they want to elect more scientists to Congress, which I think is a good idea. But at the same time, <laughs> right now, I think most of the science committee are non-scientists, or actually maybe even all of it might be non-scientists. Yes, I'm pretty sure the Republican side of it is not scientists. <laughs> uh, but actually, there is a there is a Republican physicist in Congress, or maybe there was. I forget if he, yeah. if he retired or not. I could also believe that, though. That doesn't surprise me. But it allowed... But I do... But yes. I, so this is why, like, not, like, so basically anyone can be appointed to any committee. This is not, uh, right. what your prior employment was. Also, right. I think that's good. <laughs> I just want to mention just in general, the rules state that basically all relevant factors should be considered by the steering committees, like, uh, merit, like the well, service of the committee, what? degree of commitment oh, okay. to the democratic agenda and diversity of the caucus. <laughs> So, D- div- diversity, so diversity is interesting. I I'm, I wonder if that's something that was pushed through by... I guess it couldn't be progressive because this set of rules you're looking at isn't... Um, wouldn't show that influence yet. But then the other thing is, like, loyalty to, like, the Democratic agenda. I don't know. That's... But, yeah, I mean, that is... That is something that... It's not surprising. It's just funny to me that they would have it so openly stated. I mean, maybe this is why they want to don't want to release their rules now. But honestly, you, this is something you could keep implicit and not... If they're really afraid of yeah. stuff like this being news, which I don't think anyone will report on it, um, it's still something they could do. They could get rid of it. Yeah. But maybe it's also important for like members in particular to know that this is a, an issue that... The, that the caucus is going to consider, which is something that maybe you do want to reinforce within the members of a dem- of a party caucus. <laughs> I guess. Okay. So, new members, when they get elected to Congress and their elections confirmed, basically they indicate their preferences to the steering committee of what committees they want to be on. The steering committee is composed of 12 members representing different geographic regions, as well as the caucus chair, majority leader, and speaker. Committee assignments are made by the steering committee and are approved on a per-committee basis that I previously mentioned. Members basically have to re- be renominated to a committee if they are there, but the but essentially the procedure is essentially automatic for them to be re- renominated if the party is still either in the majority or in the minority, unless there is some rule of the House that prevents them from being renominated, like we previously talked about the term limits on the Budget and Appropriations Committee. So essentially, the Appropriations and Ways Committee is kind of seen like a very important committee, so 
if you wanted to make additional nominations to it, you have to give notice to the Democratic caucus chair and vice chair. So if you're going to be trying to contest the chosen members on the floor of the caucus, you're going to have to give previous notice. And um, so to the appropriations committee, new members can only be appointed essentially if, um, if there is vacancy. So basically the rules say that, oh. that, if, because it's such a such a powerful committee, right? People are gonna kind of inf- well, it's a little bit of an elitist move there. People who are already in control of the committee are probably not likely to want to leave. Yes, yes, but essentially, they they only new people can only be appointed to appropriations if there's vacancies on the committee. The only way you can really, like, I don't know if you if for some reason a, there's a whole new, uh, a whole bunch of newly elected Democrats and they really want to beat the leadership they could essentially vote down all the old nominees and then submit That's... new nominees to the steering committee and then after the steering committee has proposed nominees again then i think they would be able to put in their own nominees but oh. it's a much more that seems unlikely yes it's much more difficult for other committees you can just vote down i think and then you can like basically propose new ones so it's it's a lot harder for appropriations but if there's a will, there's a way, right? Hmm. But I guess so. The two committees, which are made kind of directly by the speaker, or signed directly by the speaker, are actually the rules and the House Administrations committees, which makes sense on some level, but it, in my opinion, gives the speaker a disproportionate amount of power over preventing any changes to like how House of Representatives people are elected. So. They could stack the House Administration Committee with people who definitely are, like, in safe seats and they don't want to be redistricted, right? So then, right. So then it will never get out of the House, like, a law to get rid of gerrymandering, for example. Yeah, but again, I also think there would have to be, like, a pretty massive change in the way that Congress is composed if, for, for, for gerrymandering to end, like... Oh, there are so many hurdles to that happening. I feel like it's just uh, an unlikely thing. Yeah. Well, and also, but the thing, the check, the only check on this power is that they have to be formally approved by the caucus. But if the caucus does not approve a particular person or a particular list, the only recourse that the speaker has to nominate someone else until they are approved. Hmm. So. The Congress has no say in who the selection of these people. Um, and also, the House administration is also responsible for judging the outcomes of elections. So, if there's a contested election to the House, the House administration is where that procedure starts. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, but yeah, but most of the other authority is administrative. So. Now then, let's talk about how ranking members and chairs are assigned to the budget committee. So, the chair of the budget committee has to be a member, has to be from the members recommended by the steering committee. What that means is the caucus can't just directly elect a chair of the budget committee. They have to first get someone on the list of people nominated, and then they have to contest the nomination for chair from that list. 
So there's just a, hmm. there's just a like, um, but these are by the old rules. I'm not sure what the 116th Congress's rules say because, I'm I guess these rules are pretty easy to change. They they don't like require two thirds vote or anything to change. But that was the rules in the 115th Congress. Other nominations to the committee, for example, can be made by simple written notice of five five caucus members in addition to the member nominated. So if someone just wants to be on the budget committee or contest the full list of nominees, they can more easily do that. And then the last member of the budget committee uh, is this, is appointed by the speaker. So the speaker gets one direct appointment to the budget committee. Okay. So, and also just in general, based on the rules of the House, there are requirements that members in the budget committee be some of them be from other committees. So there's, so if you're in the majority, for example, you are required to have three members from the Appropriations and Ways Committee be on the Budget Committee, as well as one from Rules. In the minority, you have to have two from Appropriations and two from uh, Ways and Means on the Budget Committee. So yep. there's... It's actually a very cool balancing. Like, I, I like that structure. Yeah, It's a very cool little solution to... The question of how do you like properly educate people who like how do you select people who are properly educated enough on the issues to be dealing with the budget? So basically, once the caucus recommends membership of a committee, or sorry, once the steering committee recommends membership of a committee to the caucus, um, based on past rules, they would just essentially go back and recommend recommend someone else. But based on the one hundred fifteenth rules, you have to implemented the direction uh, of the caucus if the notice prevail on the vote to approve the membership of a committee. So basically, if you should do what the caucus tells you to do, but there's no enforcement mechanism uh, yeah. until the, you come back with nominations. I guess at that point, by the rules, they could directly start nominating people from the floor. Uh, so it's, it's been opened up a bit more. Mm. So essentially, in summary... The steering committee essentially decides all the nominees of, in the first order, except for the nominees for the House Administration Rules Committees, which is decided by the Speaker. In addition, they have to comply with any constraints that the House rules themselves have. So, for example, the Budget Committee, you have to have a certain number of people who are also on other committees being the Budget Committee. So that is one thing that the steering committee has to comply with. Additionally, they have to comply with the rules that you can only be on a certain number of committees and just the caucus rules say that you can only be either a member of this exclusive committee or a member of these other committees that are not exclusive, but then you can't be in an exclusive committee. And then finally, there's going to be sometimes exceptions to these rules just simply because some members have a lot of privilege and a lot of um, <laughs> influence Power. within the caucus. But typically, I don't think these rules, I don't think they're typically going to be exempt from those rules. What will typically happen, I think, is the rules will be just changed for a particular Congress so that, oh, look, there's no more, there's not an exception anymore because this is what the rules say now. Like, for example, um, when I was reading back through the old rules, I think it was, it's in the current rules, but I think it was added in some Congress where they said, starting from this Congress, this is an exclusive committee. But before this Congress, if you were a member of the committee, this exclusivity <laughs> doesn't apply to you. <laughs> That's great. So yeah, of course, seniority then in that case is really important. Okay, 
So now that we've talked a little bit about how members are assigned to committees, let's talk about how um, committee chairs are chosen. So uh, committee chairs were in the past chosen just by seniority. Now the rules are a little bit more flexible in, in that the caucus can help decide who the committee chair will be. So back in the past, uh, what happened was the, the steering committee would recommend a member to be chair of the committee. And basically, if the matter wasn't approved by the caucus, it went to, like, by, like, unanimous consent. So, like, it wasn't approved unanimously, then they go into a secret ballot. If it's not approved by a majority in the affirmative and the secret ballot, at that point, the caucus doesn't get to choose whatever, whoever they want. At that point, <laughs> the nomination is sent back to the steering committee, and they get to choose someone else. And then they do the same thing again. Only if it ha- fails twice does the caucus get to propose the chair nominee. I mean, that sounds uh, like the perks of leadership right there. Yes. However, the current procedure is that um, the chair is nominated by the steering committee. If, uh, And, of course, that person has to be eligible to be the chair of the committee. If you were already a chair in, a past, in the past Congress, you can't have anyone run against you on the floor of the caucus unless uh, 14 members of this or more of the steering committee vote for another chair nominee or 50 members total of the caucus request in writing that there be an additional nominees for a chair so basically you have to be pretty damn influential to defeat and run even just to run against another uh, chair who's already a chair of a committee who's already served as chair of the committee in the past congress so if you wanted to has that ever happened i don't know I'm not sure. I've not. I couldn't find any examples, but this is what the rules say. So, like, if you really, yeah. if like the progressives really felt like they wanted to challenge the current uh, Democratic leadership, and they really wanted to go go at it, maybe they can. Maybe if they elect enough progressives, then they could like have a full out brawl in the caucus. But they well, would presumably, if they had enough progressives, they would just elect the chair, and then they would do whatever they want with the rules. Right. But also, like, I'm not sure, like, at what point the new steering committee goes into power versus the old steering committee, because all these committee assignments are done while the old Congress is still kind of in power, right? Because you're elected in November, so once you're elected in November, and you're presumed to be the congressman from that district, then you go and start having, being a member of all these caucus meetings, right? And yeah. at that point, you elect, you nominate someone to be the the minority or, or majority leader for the next caucus or speaker for the next caucus and then yeah, but i mean like presumably if there is a movement you could plan this out before like ahead of time of course of course but what i'm just saying is this is the procedure if you oh, didn't yeah, plan yeah. it out so however it's a lot easier for someone to challenge the chair if they weren't chair in the previous congress in this case the, the chair, whoever's nominated by the steering committee, is put up for a vote, but anyone from the caucus can nominate anyone else from the like caucus floor when this election is done. So in this case, there's no like requirement that there be previous notice in writing from this number of people that this person should run as chair. If that makes sense. In this case, someone could just be nominated directly from the floor. Once you've chosen the chair, there's someone known as the vice chair of a committee, which is basically the person who 
will be the chair if the chair chair is absent. And by the house rules, they are just someone chosen by the chair, right? So by the house rules, there's no formal procedure. But by the Democratic caucus rules, the the chair has to choose a particular person who is chosen by the way they've decided. And the way they decided to choose the vice chair was, or vice ranking member, has to have been on the committee for fewer than five terms. So they can't be on the committee for more than five from basically 10 years or more. Additionally, the selection of the vice chair is done by secret ballot, and you can only be vice chair for one term. And the vice chair is elected by people on the committee, mem- on the committee subject to the rules of the caucus elections. So basically, they have to do the whole thing where if there's more nominations, they have to allow there to be more nominations from the membership of the committee, and then they have to take a vote, basically. But... The vice chair is a lot less of a seniority thing because you can only serve one term as vice chair. And then um, subcommittee chairs are typically elected in the same way that chairs are elected from the, from the membership of each subcommittee of a committee. And those subcommittee chairs are essentially elected by the membership of the whole committee of the Democrats in that committee. So for example, if you're if you want to be chair of an appropriation subcommittee, your whole committee membership has to vote for you to be a member, to be chair of that subcommittee. And then once that is done, that has that has to be approved by the steering committee. So in this case, the caucus um, doesn't really play a role in deciding the chair of subcommittees, but the rules do allow, I think, the caucus to intervene if, like, the sub if the steering committee and the committee get into a disagreement, basically. That's a pretty cool system. Surprising, considering how much other like centralization I see in the uh, in the democratic system, like the the amount of stuff that's discretionary to the steering committee's authority. It's an interesting balance that they let the chair, the subcommittee chairs, excuse me, um, have a little bit more latitude in that respect. Yes, they're elected by the membership of the committee, right? But typically, it seems from the rules that there is a um, assumption that the subcommittee chairs will be chosen by basically um, or in order of seniority. So like the most senior member of the subcommittee will be the one who serves as chair. Ah, okay. But technically, yes, technically the procedure is the, it seems that the committee elects them and then the steering committee confirms them. So with all this in mind, there's also restrictions on committee membership in the Democratic caucus, so um, basically, if you're a chair of a exclusive or non-exclusive committee, you can't serve on another committee. But this does not apply to the chairs of the Budget, Foreign Affairs, House Administration, Natural Resources, Oversight and Government Reform, Science, Space, Technology, Small Business, and Veteran Affairs. So there's a bunch of committees that doesn't apply to. But in general, if you're the chair of a com- committee, you can't be on another committee. I guess this is to balance out. Uh, influence within Congress. Yeah, makes sense. Also, uh, chairs of a committee um, that has legislative jurisdiction can't serve on the Committee on Ethics. So I guess this also to balance out like some ethical problems that might be posed by being a chair of a committee. Yeah, I could definitely see the wisdom in that as well. Also, in furtherance, there's a, another rule which says chairs can't serve as chairs of other committees. Um, so like, for example, if you were one of those chairs that can be on another committee, you can't also be a chair of another committee. So 
You're all, you're limited to be ex- exactly chair of one committee. However, that sounds like a very good. Yes. Oh, however, basically, if there's like some special committees that are formed for a particular Congress, you can potentially chair them. Like, if there is a yeah a committee committee like a special emergency issue. Yeah, committee, basically, like, and you have some expertise on that, but you yeah. also happen to be a chair in another committee. They want the latitude to be able to yeah. appoint you. Yep. But it also you you can be, for example, chair of a joint committee. So the the House rules and just the Senate rules presuppose that, for example, the chairs of Ways and Means will serve as a chair of the Joint Committee on Taxation every other year. So yeah, that's something you can continue to do. Chair of the House Administration Committee can be the chair of the Joint Committee on on Printing and the Joint Committee on the Library. If there is an ad hoc committee formed, this is the previous exception I was talking about. So if there is a ad hoc committee uh, formed for some certain issue, the caucus itself can grant you an exception to be the chair of that committee. But for example, if you're chair of a standing, select, permanent, select, special, ad hoc, or joint committee, you cannot be a chair of another committee in general. Yeah. But the one exception is a caucus can allow you to be a chair of an ad hoc committee, which is basically committee form for a very specific issue and of course this doesn't include any like conference committees so you can of course chair a conference committee if that's how it's decided usually the chair of a committee will in fact be responsible for chairing the caucus committee i think so also there's another restriction on chairs if you're a chair of a full committee or a select committee with legislative jurisdiction you cannot serve as chair of a subcommittee so in general chairs of a committee can be chairs of a subcommittee but not if the committee has legislative jurisdiction that they chair. But there's, of course, as always, there's exceptions, right? So if you're, mm-hmm. if, you're the, as always. if you're chair of the Committee on Appropriations, chair of the Committee on Ethics, chair of the Committee of House Administration, or you're chair of joint committees, this does not apply to you. So, for example, I believe the chair of Committee of Appropriations can actually serve as the chair of one of the appropriation subcommittees as well. Oh. Well, that's a little weird. I was going to say, it makes sense if you're on these important committees that you'd be restricted in the, in a, in the ability to serve as subcommittee chair because, um, one, you're probably busier than other chairs because you're controlling something important, but two, a lot of power. You don't need even more power of having a specific e or more specific oversight authority and less um, people watching. I, you don't need that much more power. Um, and then it is interesting that uh, the Appropriations Committee would be accepted from that. I don't... No, no, so, like, the chair of the Appropriations Committee already can't serve in any other committee except for Appropriations, but it right. s- seems like they can be chair of a That's what I mean, like, it's e- even so, it seems strange. Like, the Appropriations Committee is a pretty important committee, so even if you could only be chair, it doesn't seem like you're losing too much... Like, it seems like you'd probably have enough on your plate already that you don't need to be a subcommittee chair as well. Well, I think but. what happens is because appropriation is so important, like a subcommittee in the appropriation is basically what a committee is normally. Okay. So I think the chair wants to have some very specific authority over some specific part of appropriations. So I think I think just once all the subcommittees report to the main committee, I think it's just a lot already, has already been decided which the chair might want to have more, I guess, my new control in a, certain, in a certain different committee. I don't know, maybe that's why. Fair enough. Also, if, for example, a chair resigned or a chair 
was convicted of a crime, usually they make them resign or they remove them from their positions as chair in that case. But if this resignation was after March 1st of the second uh, session of current Congress, then you do not have to um, give up your placements in other committees. So this is basically because we have to elect a new committee. We've already just, this has already been going on for like a year and a half. We don't want to like unnecessarily displace someone from Another thing is you can't be on more than two committees with legislative jurisdiction. Legislative jurisdiction means your committee can propose bills or resolutions that can become law. So there's another rule, which I think is a good one. You can't be a member of the Ethics Committee for more than three Congresses in any period of five successive Congresses. I think that's good because you should keep refreshing the ethics people just to make sure they're not compromised in their ethics. <laughs> not that the Ethics Committee really has much power. I think power. it has power if it's a bipartisan thing. So they're an equally divided committee, so there's three people from each party on it. But for example, if both sides really agree that someone did something wrong, then yes, they can come after you. That's true. And I think that's what the idea was if for was for it eventually originally that if it's a bipartisan thing, then we're going to make sure to punish you. Yeah, I guess that makes a lot of sense too. But yeah, so like it's also in a way structured in a way that the majority party can't punish the minority party for something that the minority party didn't think was a violation, right? So that's why there's an equal number of members for each side. So, and just in addition to make sure that the members on the Permanent Subcommittee on Intelligence also don't get too influential, there's a requirement that if you're on that committee, <coughs> you, can't, um, you can't be on more than one, one standing committee during that time. So, like, essentially, if you're on two committees and then you're appointed to the Permanent Subcommittee on Intelligence, you can't be on any other committee, essentially. And then, of course... Uh, the same, the same rule for the budget committee as for the overall house. <laughs> okay, so now that we've talked yeah. about the actual rules for the selection of committees by both the House Republicans and the House Democrats, yeah, let's talk about how these things actually occur in practice. Because even though these are the form of rules, these are not rules that are actively either actively tracked historically, so there's no really set parliamentarian who's going to help the chair of the caucus enforce these rules. Also, these rules are pretty simple to change because they're not really public. Yeah. They're not, not subject to that much public criticism. And they do seem to change pretty frequently. They seem to change uh, reflecting, like, especially at least it seems like the Democrats, it, as, like, certain issues come up, uh, or as constituencies within the, the caucus vary, then the rules get changed to, like, balance things out, so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So things do change. But let's talk about what is some actual examples of politics and how this all occurs. So yeah. one of the biggest ideas behind a caucus is that it exists to promote the members of the caucus, to promote their agenda, but also to make sure that they stay with the agenda of the caucus. So the Democratic Party wants Democratic representatives to continue voting for Democratic ideas and vice versa for the Republicans. Right. It's the essential idea of the party structure is that you're supposed to like vote as a party. And exactly. have one platform. So, for example, as a Democrat, you're not expected to publicly support any Republicans. 
and vice versa. As a Republican, you're expected to publicly support the Republican nominee for president to, pu to publicly support any Republicans running for office. And not, well, actually, you're not required to support Republican, but you're just required to not support a Democrat. And vice versa, as a Democrat, you're required to not support a Republican. So, for example, in the 1960s, John Williams, who was a um, was this most senior member of a committee, and um, or he wasn't the most he was pretty senior in the committee. Uh, his his seniority and his membership in the caucus were essentially stripped by the the caucus after he voiced support for Barry Goldwater in the 1964 election. So right. essentially, John Williams said. I support this Republican nominee for, for president. And then the caucus said, we're no longer going to consider you to have any seniority within the caucus. And we're also not going to appoint you to any committees. Um, once, once he did that. Mm. So if that happens, then basically because a caucus has to explicitly appoint you to a committee within the House. So if a caucus strips you of committee membership, then you're part of no committees. You're only, yeah. The only votes you can take are on the floor of the House. What I think is really interesting about this episode is that it illustrates the, like, extra, like, I guess, extra-governmental way that political parties actually operate, because they, they are kind of, like, not, like, they're, they're private enough in the sense that the Republican Party can set its own whole, whole set of its own rules, so can the Democratic Party, so if you mess with the party, then they can have, like, the way that the rules of the party can interface with the actual rules of Congress to completely, like, rob you of the opportunity to really work. It's really, it, it is interesting to see the way that the collective action, like, of parties really, which are, which are external to the, re like, there's nowhere in the Constitution or in, like, the articles, uh, the, the Bill of Rights or any of the amendments, like, that says there'll be political parties. Like, the, they're just organic outgrowths of the political process and action. And here's, like, a really interesting way you see that even that political part, like, even that extra, like, it, it's not required, but even in that system of extra stuff, there's a huge body of, par like, parliamentary procedure that has grown out. Yeah. It's just very... Yeah, but yeah, also, as another thing to add to that, in these committees, uh, in sorry, in this caucus... Mm-hmm. Uh, you, the rules that are adopted by the caucus aren't public, they're not known, and, for example, if you are just a fan of good governance, like, you're voting for really issues that candidates are running for, but you have really no say as an average person on what the internal workings of a party will be. So maybe one party will work better, and it might be inherently more democratic than another party, but if you don't necessarily support what that party stands for, you can't really vote for that party. So there's really no, uh, there's there's no like, there's no way that voters can select for what rules they want a party to have. In their, I mean, it's not that voters will, most people will probably not care that much. But if, for example, I don't know, you want there to be less partisanship in Congress, and in fact you want, you want to encourage bipartisanship. There's no way you can you can physically do that, um, at least through rules of each party. Mm. Um, so, just as another matter, 
um, based on just studies of voting patterns and committee assignments that have been done in academia and just the general accepted conclusion is that party loyalty results in better committee assignments. Uh, typically, Which, by the way, just that might not sound like a particularly stunning revelation, but it's important to rec- I, I recognize that there's a statistical like basis for this often like like what would just be assumptions we have a real like basis for that in the voting records and the main caveat to this is actually party loyalty when you are when it's difficult so it's not necessarily party loyalty when it's easy it's party loyalty when it's difficult like voting with the party when you're in a swing district it you're much more likely to get good committee assignments and more leadership roles if you vote with a party and you're in a swing district. Whereas if you vote with a party, but you're in a solidly uh, district that's always going to solidly send that party uh, to the Congress, in that case, party loyalty is a lot less important. But, however, on the flip side, individuals who don't vote with the party and are from those types of districts will probably be more strongly punished than those who are in swing districts and don't vote the party. So yeah, that is well, another an, thing. It's an interesting little balance. Like it, it makes perfect sense because you have to incent like people who live in swing districts or people who are representing swing districts need to have the latitude to have swing opinions. Like if you look at the Democrats who get elected in West Virginia, that none of them are ever like, oh, coal is like the fat, like the past. Forget about coal miners. They're like, yeah, coal is important, but like organized unions and like labor, like that's how we like protect our working class, and that's how they. So like, they're gonna be strong maybe on gun rights and some like things that working class people care more about, but then they're also going to be still like a Democrat. So like, or if you look at places like, there are some Midwestern states that have fairly good sort of moderate republicans who care about things like good taxation policies that are actually like progressive so but but the point is that you need that incentive in those swing states to actually have the latitude to keep your seat whereas in a safe district there's like we can find somebody else to have that seat if you're not obeying the party line so yeah exactly And last point I want to make is that even though the leadership has a lot of power, it is is possible to go against the leadership and win. So a concrete example of this was actually really, I have a really strange personal connection to both these reps (laughs) in the sense that when I lived in Rutgers, when I went to my undergraduate university, Pallone was my representative for the congressional district I was in. And where I currently live, Representative Ishu is actually my current representative. I think Representative Pallone is my representative. He may have been for my entire life. Or not my entire life, but his. He, I may have lived in his district for my entire life. So I was previously represented by Congressman Pallone when, he was, when this was happening, and currently I'm represented by the person that was running against him. So what happened is <laughs> uh, the ranking member of the committee on the Science Committee, as well as the second highest ranking member of that committee, they were both retiring. So there was a vacuum in who would actually be the, the ranking member of the science committee for the next Congress. In that vacuum, uh, Pallone and Eshoo wanted both to both be the ranking members. So 
Pallone was supposed to be the next ranking member because he was next in line. But uh, Ishu was actually actively promoted by uh, Nancy Pelosi. Part of the Californian gang. Yeah, part of that, but also... In general, she was promoting Congresswoman Ishu. And so, in this case, there was a really long leadership race for, for the ranking member of the Science and Technology Committee. And this is the good part. The steering committee of the Democratic Caucus, by a vote of 30 to 19, recommended uh, Congressman Ishu of California. But Representative Pallone didn't back down. He took the issue to the entire caucus, and he won. He actually won the caucus votes by a vote of 100 to 90, according to Politico. Yeah, so Representative Pallone was supported by the Congressional Black Caucus. In fact, I actually want to read two quotes from Politico. So this is from a Politico article about this election. It happened in 2014. If you want to look it up, it's called uh, Frank Pallone Energy Commerce Committee. And this quote says, Some members felt turned off by Pelosi's public support. The Congressional Black Caucus was an early supporter of Pallone and made repeated point to stress the importance of Pallone's seniority. Black lawmakers have a deep appreciation for seniority, as it was historically the quickest way African American members earned gavels. So essentially, the Congressional Black Caucus really supports uh, the seniority system because they see it as a way that African American members of the caucus can actually become chairs of committees. Um, additionally, Pallone was actually supported by the minority whip, uh, Stephen Hoyer, and uh, as well as the Congressional Black Caucus, and he was able to convince his colleagues uh, that he was should be the ranking member. So this was actually yeah. an interesting fight, because this was a fight between the um, majority leader at the time, Nancy Pelosi, and the, sorry, the minority leader, Nancy Pelosi, and the minority whip, uh, Hoyer. In the end, Pallone ended up winning against Congressman Ishu, and he retained his designation as ranking member of the committee. Yep. And so this is why it's important to know the rules and how you can challenge members within the caucus that it is possible to still be the leadership and win. It's unlikely, yeah. but if you're an influential enough figure, if you have a lot of allies on the Hill, you can win against the leadership. Yeah. Which kind of shows that there is at least, even if the rules seem very biased, there clearly is a democratic impulse left if, when it really comes down to a hard decision, the the leader can lose. With that, this is the end of episode five, committee assignments. Thank you all very much for listening. I hope all of you have a good day.